Thanks for listening to the Granary Church Podcast. For more information, head to granary.org.au or follow us on social media at The Granary Church. I'm going to pray before I start um, sharing because I think um, that's a good thing to do. I've prepared things that I would like to share that God's put on my heart uh, in prayer on this uh, challenge that we're currently going through. But as always, I want the Holy Spirit to filter things for everyone and that he would speak to us as a whole but also individually. And I believe God can do that. He can do more than one thing at once. He is an amazing multitasker. In fact, actually, he's probably the only being who can multitask. You can't actually multitask. You just shift quickly from one to the other. But that's a technicality. I'm going to pray. God, thank you for this time here together this evening, Lord. And I thank you that you want to speak to us. Lord, we just want to quieten our minds and our hearts and our souls before you, Lord, and ask that you would speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit that what you want to communicate to us tonight would come through me and go through our ears and come into our hearts, Lord. We believe, God, that you want to see us change and become more like you and closer to you, God. So we just invite your Holy Spirit to move tonight, continue to move tonight as I speak in your name. Amen. So we're in the middle of um, looking at some of our core values as a church under the challenge for the year, which is I gave my life away. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been focusing on loving extravagantly. And if we're talking about loving extravagantly, then we have to start with God first because he is the definition of extravagant love. He doesn't know how to love any other way except extravagantly. That's just how he is. And today I want to focus on one aspect of his extravagant love, And that is, I want to focus on how God's love for us is unconditional and how when we encounter his unconditional love, it changes us. Right from the start, though, I want to make an important distinction between unconditional love and unconditional tolerance. Now, they're very different things. God does not unconditionally tolerate our behavior. In fact, he paid a very steep price for our behavior. It has very real consequences. Unconditional love doesn't diminish our poor behavior. Unconditional tolerance might, but unconditional love does not. It doesn't diminish our sin. Rather, unconditional love takes it on. It takes it on. It finds a way through if we'll take it, regardless of whether we deserve it or not. And that is unconditional love. 1 John 4, 9 to 10 says this, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Here is unconditional love, that a good God would willingly choose to lay down his life for our poor decisions, that God would love us first while we are still sinners, that God would offer us a way out of our sin when we hadn't even sought out a way for ourselves. This is God's unconditional love, his amazing, undeserved holding nothing back 
love. A love that when we experience it, it completely transforms how we live. Now, it's good for us to spend time considering God's love because it is life-changing. And when you encounter it for yourself, it literally changes the whole course of your life. It goes beyond anything you might experience in your everyday. There are little tastes of it that we have in our day-to-day. Parents' love for their child, a husband and wife's love for each other, the love of a faithful friend. All those can be little pictures of unconditional love, but they're just a picture of what God's unconditional love is like. It's next level, and it changes us. But this isn't what we're used to as humans. As humans, we tend to practice something different. We tend to practice something and be more comfortable with something which we could describe as conditional love. And I want to start there by looking at conditional love first. Now, most of you, even those of you who don't really follow cricket, would remember the Australian cricket team's tour of South Africa in 2018. For those of you who don't, this picture will jog your memory. This is a picture of Cameron Bancroft putting sandpaper in his underpants. Now, I'll have some context to this in a second. This isn't some strange dermatitis treatment. We're going to talk about what it actually is about. Now, the series in South Africa was a very, very tight one. Australia had taken out the first test and then South Africa took out the second one, only just. And in the midst of all this, our captain and best batsman, Steve Smith, was struggling with form. He used to routinely pump out centuries every innings, but he was struggling. And so by the time we got to the third test and his form was down, we were getting obliterated by South Africa, absolutely obliterated. We were down by 300 and something rather runs when uh, Cameron Bancroft got busted doing this, pulling out some sandpaper from his underpants, scratching the side of the ball, and then putting the sandpaper back into his underpants. Now, the reason for this, this wasn't some sort of weird sort of little game ritual to keep him in the zone. This was ball tampering. He was trying to affect how the ball moved through the air and in doing so, give the Australian bowlers an unfair advantage over the South African batsman. He was cheating. Now, the fallout from this was that Steve Smith, who was the captain, the vice-captain, who should never have been vice-captain, David Warner, and Cameron Bancroft all got suspended for having hatched the plan to tamper with this ball and then try to carry it out. Now, to his credit, Smith put his hand up and took responsibility for his lack of leadership in the whole ordeal. Now, what's interesting about this is that up until this point, Steve Smith was probably one of the most well-loved guys in Australia. Not only was his test batting um, rating second only to the great Don Bradman, but he seemed like a really decent guy too. He spoke well, he posed for photos with kids, he supported charities. He was the sort of guy that, you know, your grandma's going to love. He basically was the antithesis of the direct opposite of Shane Warne. And so because of that, everyone thought he was an amazing, decent guy. But once this scandal broke out, it rocked our collective appraisal of Steve Smith. Steve Smith was a cheat. How could this be? So the narrative shifted and the media turned on him. And if Steve Smith was capable of this level of cheating, then he could no longer be a good person. He must be a bad person. Never mind the fact that Smith humbly took his punishment and willingly surrendered his leadership position. 
Never mind the fact that he worked hard to earn his place back into the team. Never mind the fact that most of us have probably cheated on our tax return at some point in our lives. Steve Smith was a cheat and now a bad person. These are the conditions. Humans tend to practice conditional love. We love based on a set of conditions. If you meet all the right conditions, you are seen as a good person and you're worthy of love. However, if you do not meet the right conditions, then you are a bad person and you miss out. We love these categories. We use these conditions and categories on Steve Smith and we use them on each other. And they're ingrained in this from when we're little children. Small children love identifying who is good and who is bad. Who are the goodies? Who are the baddies? Who are the superheroes? Who are the villains? Jedi versus Sith. Knight supporters versus rooster supporters. All the big distinctions of life. We love a good person category and a bad person category. But even as life goes on and things are not as clearly black and white as in the case of Steve Smith, we like to stick to these conditions. And we find ourselves defaulting to our good people versus bad people dichotomy in our conversations with each other about each other. Who deserves our love versus who doesn't? We're often more comfortable with our love being conditional. Now the Bible has something interesting to say about these conditions and when it comes to who qualifies as a good person versus a bad person. And Paul writes in the book of Romans, he makes this comment, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all in the bad category. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. Now, this is an uncomfortable truth and one that our society doesn't like much. We prefer the good versus bad distinctions. Further to that, we prefer the good versus bad distinctions with us in the good group and others in the bad group. We like those conditions in particular. And social psychology has shown in numerous studies that we preference people who we perceive to be more like us or more like how we would like to be perceived. We are more likely to rate them favorably on evaluation forms. We are more likely to initiate friendships with them. We are more likely to offer them a job. We are more likely to be romantically attracted to them. Studies have demonstrated each of these trends. Conditions are something that we like and conditions in our favor more specifically. But here's the thing about conditional love. Here's the point I want to make about it. That is that conditional love does not change anything. It is not transformative. Conditional love keeps things the same. Conditional love keeps us segregated in our little circles of sameness, pointing fingers angrily at anyone outside of our circle. It doesn't change a thing. But on the other hand, unconditional love, unconditional love changes everything. Now, it's important we grasp this because if we don't appreciate what God's love is like towards us, then we can't expect to show that same love towards others. If we don't appreciate what God's love is like towards us, then we can't be expected to share that same love with others. You can't share what you've never experienced. The world was not and is not changed through conditional love. It is transformed through unconditional love. The love of a God who loved sinners who had rejected him and done nothing to earn his love 
and affection. Now, the Apostle Paul, who wrote the book of Romans, his life was radically changed by God's unconditional love. And he also wrote this later on in the book of Romans. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love is unconditional. It breaks the molds that we have created. While we were still sinners, God demonstrated his love for us by dying for us. While we were still sinners, while we were in the bad group. In the field I work in, in psychology, I'm always encouraged by the results of good research which indicate things about God and about the world that he created that God has always said were there from the start. I always find that stuff wonderful. And in psychology, uh, we research some really interesting things about human behavior. I'm saying we research. I didn't research this in specifically, but I'm just, you know, taking some credit for it. So I want to share with you some research on love. Now, when it comes to labels that we might use for bad people, psychology has offered a couple of ones that have really been latched onto in popular culture. So one is a narcissist. That's a popular term for referring to someone who we think is bad. A narcissist from our general pop understanding is someone who engages in selfish behavior. So, you know, for instance, if someone snubs you at work, they must be a narcissist. If someone takes the last iced vovo from the lunchroom, must be a narcissist. If somebody sticks a photo of themselves having a wonderful time out for dinner, they must be a narcissist. But if we're going to label everyone who's got selfish behavior as being a narcissist, there's not going to be many non-narcissists left. But narcissist is one of those. The other is psychopath. Now, you probably don't use the word psychopath to refer to people you don't like as much because generally when we think of the word psychopath, we think of serial killers and CEOs. Um, and there is plenty of research into psychopathy in both those populations. But a psychopath is someone we think of as just being plain evil. Um, and while sometimes that can seem to be the case, um, it's a little bit more complicated than that. And I'm just going to share just briefly, just to give you an idea of what I mean as I talk about psychopaths, about some of the criteria for um, what a psychopath might look like. Now, with some of this criteria, I don't want you to be sitting there thinking of someone you don't like, going tick, 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 psychopath. Because this applies to all of us at some point in our lives, right? All this behavior. It's a bit more complicated than that, but I'm going to share some of it anyway. This is chronic exhibits of these symptoms. So failure to conform to social norms concerning lawful behavior, deceitfulness, impulsivity, irritability and aggression, having no regard for the safety of self or others, consistent irresponsibility, lack of remorse or inability to feel guilt. So it's a wonderful list. Uh, and it explains why the term psychopath is often used to describe someone who we think is definitely in the bad group. If we were to play the game of good people versus bad people, psychopaths would definitely meet criteria for being bad people. 
Now, I don't deal with many psychopaths in my job as a psychologist. And the reason being is I work primarily with children. And we're not allowed to call children psychopaths. And because they're still developing. However, that doesn't mean that children don't behave like psychopaths. Um, in fact, every child behaves like a psychopath at some point. But there are some children who, for lack of a better word, are more psychopathic than others. In fact, children display, some of these children display tendencies that we would say that they are predisposed to developing psychopathy as adults. Now, these tendencies or traits are often referred to as callous, unemotional traits. In other words, they are tendencies in a child to be hard and uncaring. I don't know what's worse, killing a child, callous, unemotional, or a psychopath. Both aren't wonderful things that you want to hear about your child or that a child wants to hear about themselves. But children with these callous, unemotional traits are more likely to be defiant, aggressive towards others, rule breakers, lie, manipulative, deliberately hurt other children and animals, and most worryingly, are the least responsive to discipline or negative consequences. So these are the children that Hollywood likes to make horror movies about. Now, I want to get to the research uh, now and as to why I'm talking about psychopathic kids, because this is meant to be a message on unconditional love, right? Now, Neurological research that looks at scanning children's brains has recently shown that in children with callous unemotional traits or our budding psychopaths, they have underdeveloped amygdalas. So here's a bit of a diagram of an amygdala and a cross-section of someone's head. Now the amygdala is very useful for a range of different reasons, but one of the reasons that's pertinent to this study is that it helps us to recognize the emotions of others, specifically fear. Now, if you have an under-responsive amygdala, then your brain is basically unresponsive to seeing others distressed or frightened. So for most kids, seeing someone distressed is enough for them to change their behavior. But for the callous, unemotional kids, it's not. It doesn't affect them. Their brains are wired differently. Kids with psychopathic tendencies have their dysfunction hardwired into their brain. But don't worry, like all good research, we're trying to understand the problem so we can work out a solution. So let's get to a solution. So a clinic in Sydney that works specifically with really um, badly behaving children um, and has a high proportion of kids who go there who have these callous unemotional traits observe something very interesting in their treatment programs. So they implemented this thing where they would just try to get the parent or caregiver of the child to uh, take the child and to look them deeply in their eyes and tell them that they love them. When they did this, they noticed something very interesting, and that was that the psychopathic kids couldn't handle it. They squirmed and wriggled and literally busted out of their seats in order to avoid making eye contact and having this encounter with their parent. Having their parent or carer look them deeply in the eyes and tell them that they love them, that they are a good kid and that they are proud of them, caused these children to completely spin out. Children who are normally unmoved by anything. Now this gets even more interesting because the clinic started instructing parents and carers to regularly do this with their psychopathic child. And gradually, 
the child stopped squirming and began to respond to the parent with appropriate affection. And here's the clincher. When their brains were scanned again, that unresponsive amygdala was suddenly becoming responsive. The hardwiring of their brain changed. And the very mechanism that made them so callous in the first place was being completely transformed by the expression of undeserved, unconditional, holding nothing back love. There in the lives of little children, in the microcosm of a parent-child relationship, is scientific evidence of the transforming nature of unconditional love. Here's what we've known all along. What the entire message of the Bible has cried out to us for thousands of years, unconditional love changes us. It changes us. See, the Christian faith is not one of a set of rules and regulations. The Christian faith is not a religion like that. Unlike every other faith, the Christian faith does not prescribe a pathway that we must follow in order for God to love us. No, the Christian faith works the other way around. God loves us unconditionally. He loves us first while we are sinners, while we are undeserving. And if we just begin to look back at him into his eyes, then our lives will begin to change. Both the Bible and history are filled with stories of exactly this. This room is filled of stories of exactly this. God's unconditional love completely transforms the lives of those who will accept it. The author of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul, was a well-educated, upper-class Jewish man. He was a Roman citizen too, so he had this extra level of privilege. And he was uh, taught under the tutelage of one of the prominent rabbis of the time, Gamaliel, who's also mentioned in the book of Acts. And Paul became part of the Pharisees' party. And the Pharisees, uh, amongst a lot of other things, were very big on rules and regulations, and very big on rules and regulations and adhering to those in order to have any access to God. Uh, And this way of thinking really aggravated Jesus. Uh, because they were providing these obstacles to people being able to approach God, unnecessary obstacles. Now, Paul grew up um, in this line of thought, in this line of teaching, and he grew to hate Christians. He hated them. In fact, he was so hostile towards them, what he used to do was to go um, into the homes of Christian families and facilitate the arrest of the men and women in those homes just for being of the Christian faith, for being followers of Jesus. He was also complicit and approved of the unlawful mob killing of Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian faith. So basically, if God had any conditions on who he would show his love to, um, Paul would have missed out. Someone who openly opposes the work of God, puts rules that no one can follow in the way of knowing God and seeks to punish those who follow God, someone like that isn't deserving of God's love. So what does God do with Paul? Does he shut him out as a bad person, give up on him and refuse to show him grace? Well, let's read in the, in the story of Acts. In chapter 9, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. 
He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias, you, come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Little side note, isn't it interesting when God tells us to do something, we like to check that he's got all the facts, (laughs) as if he missed something. Well, the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim, proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, and placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord... Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now, if God loved conditionally, then instead of striking Paul blind, he would have struck him dead. He would have. Paul was on his way to go and arrest and persecute more Christian men and women. But God doesn't do that. He didn't take this easy, humanistic, and conditional path with it. He took a different way. Not only does God not kill Paul, he reaches out to him in forgiveness. And he shows him the plans that he has for his life. And he brings into his world the kindness of the very people that Paul was hunting down. And from this point on, Paul's life completely changes. Paul goes on not to seek to destroy the church, but to become probably the greatest and most significant church planter in all of history. And he gives his life for this cause. Half of the New Testament ends up being written by him. He goes from breathing murderous threats to the church to having the Holy Spirit breathe the word of God through him. How's that for a transformation? No wonder this man can write in Romans, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul had lived it. He had experienced it and he had been completely transformed by the unconditional love of God. And this is but one story in the Bible, one story in all of history. I mean, Abraham was an idol worshiper who became the father 
of faith. Moses was a murderer and a coward who became a leader. Esther was part of a pagan king's harem and became a saviour for her people. John was bad-tempered and ambitious and became the disciple of love. All of these changes weren't earned. They weren't through following an eightfold path or a five-step program. They were simply the response of experiencing God's unconditional love. Because when you experience God's unconditional love, it changes you. It changes you. And so this is the challenge for us. Will you look deeply into the eyes of God's unconditional love for you? Will you take the risk and letting everything else go, let his love transform you? And will you do it not just for yourself, but for those around you, for this city and for the world? I'd like to pray for us now. I'd like to pray because I feel like for many of us, we're like those squirmy psychopathic children. Sorry to call you or liken you to a psychopathic child, but that squirminess, that discomfort from being confronted with the unconditional love of your heavenly Father, so much so that you avoid looking at it. I believe that right now God wants to look deep into your soul and let you know that he loves you. He forgives you. He thinks you are precious. He has amazing plans for you. You didn't earn it. You didn't have to do anything for this. He just wants to give it to you because he loves you. So I'm going to pray. How about we close our eyes? God, thank you for your incredibly wild, unconditional love for us, Lord. It's the love that changes us. It's the love that has changed this world and continues to change this world. And there is nothing on earth like it, Lord. Right now, God, we want to choose to fix our eyes on you, Lord. And where we are squirming, where we are uncomfortable, where we want to jump out of our seat and run away, would you speak even clearer into our hearts that you love us. You always have and you always will. And it is your strong, strong desire to be with us. Lord, would you remind us of, it, us of that again and would you speak it into the depths of our souls, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, that you do love us unconditionally. And it's from that that we change. God, there is no one like you and there is nothing like your incredible, transforming, unconditional love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 